Welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, FA Cup semi-finalist Kevin Day, and him, relative mid-table security Kieran Maguire from Liverpool University. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from football agent Craig Honeyman, and he will be answering some of your questions. Some of them, you naughty rascals. Uh, (laughs) Ask for the right reasons, and some of them I think is physically impossible (laughs) to do. Um, before that, Kieran, it is Newsday, uh, and still the biggest news story dominating uh, the sporting headlines is Chelsea. What's the latest on the Chelsea ownership situation? Well, uh, it looks as if the the Rain Group, who are the uh, advisors uh, that, that Roman Abramovich have appointed, uh, they've received bids from uh, at least at least a dozen sets of interested parties. They're going to be filtering their way through them uh, at present um, and trying to narrow that down to three to four, who will be the preferred bidders. Who it will then become a sort of a, a bit of a, a bit of a beauty parade to a certain extent that. Um, they've got to come up with enough money. Uh, I think there there will be a degree of additional scrutiny um, of the potential owners because uh, yeah, the government uh, the government doesn't want to get directly involved, but at the same time, it, this is on the basis of the sanctions against Roman Abramovich. So, uh, you know, in an ideal world, I think that the government would like the the potential bidders to be buying into some of the issues that, uh, that have been covered in the Tracy Crouch report, you know, the golden shares, yeah. the the shadow boards. Um, and and uh, if, if that is the case, I think it adds credibility and, and credence to to Tracy's report. And also, it, it certainly ties up with the uh, with, with the views of, of the fans themselves. So, um We've seen some front of house people, um, you know, Sebastian Coe's got involved with one of the uh, one of the consortium. Uh, we've got the former head of, I think, British Airways or British Aerospace, one of the two. Uh, again, safe pair of hands. Uh, and uh, I think John Terry has uh, decided to yeah. get involved as well, which uh, yeah, which will which will go down well with uh, you know the Chelsea fans. Um, but uh, you know, John Terry doesn't always. Uh, uh, score, score, score in the right net. Uh, yeah, we were discussing his NFTs last week, for example. Well, I was going to say, if his record uh, on buying a football club is as good as his record on buying non-fungible tokens, uh, <laughs> then I probably wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. But you've already skewered one misconception there, Kieran, because I, along with many other people, assume that the Rain Group, who have been uh, asked to expedite the sale, were asked to do that by the government. But you're saying that's not the case. It's, they were asked to do that by Abramovich. That's right. Because, remember, Roman Abramovich did put Chelsea up for sale prior to the sanctions, um, and and these were his professional advisors. Now, the government will have done some uh, health checks. The government will have done some due diligence. Do they want them to continue? Yes, they are. Ultimately, these shares belong to Roman Abramovich, and his shares and his his ability to generate money from those shares has been frozen. So, um, the the shares will he will have to at some point in time either sign off uh, on the deal um he can't be involved in decision making 
So uh, I, th- I think that he will be sort of nudged towards a particular deal by the Rain Group. The government will want to uh, review it as well, uh, and certainly to protect the, the money to ensure that none of it goes to Roman Abramovich. Um, and yeah, they are they are professional banks that they 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 don't want to they don't want to have their reputation tainted. Um, so I think uh, we've got everybody broadly in alignment here, which is good news because the other issue is yeah we, we've got the sands of time running down. Chelsea lose money uh, week week by week. We don't know how much money in the bank account. C- certainly, the vibes I've got is that the uh, the, the March the March wage bill is, is is not an issue, which is great. It, you know, it, it buys yeah. you a further month. Um, and we, we could be close to uh, signing off by the end of April. Uh, the other uh, commonly held uh, perception, I think, as well, is that the most likely outcome is an American buyer because they're the most neutral. You, you can't imagine another Saudi buyer, if, even if it's a Saudi media group rather than the Saudi government. So you would think that in terms of questions being asked about you know regimes and international states uh some nicer innocent american billionaires would be your best bet um i i, I can see the, the merits in that um but uh the, you know the boris johnson was in saudi arabia himself i think only as recently as last week <coughs> indeed yeah. and, and he's and he's very keen to have good relations there so uh i, I think for the the government to say uh Yes, yes, we want your oil and gas. Yes, we want uh, you know, relations in terms of industries X, Y, and Z. But by the way, uh, we're we're going to veto Chelsea. I, I I can't see that being the case because it would be it would be an inconsistency. And, and Saudi Arabia is is very keen to uh, promote itself as both a, a venue and a, uh, a a bargaining party in in the world of sport. Yeah, there's another issue that needs resolving. Very quickly, I was a guest on Hawksby and Jacobs on Talk Sport on Monday. Uh, and I love Andy Jacobs, but at the best of times, you wouldn't compare him to a ray of sunshine. And at the moment, he's particularly, whatever the opposite of happy-go-lucky is, he's particularly the opposite of happy-go-lucky because he's a, an irate Chelsea fan. And of course, the big issue is whether Chelsea fans will be allowed into the semi-final at Wembley. I, I, I think they have to find some way of allowing Chelsea fans in, and it needs to be regulated by the FA. I don't think it can go through a third party because there will be security issues. I don't think the FA will want the shockingly negative image that will come from seeing a half-empty Wembley. I don't think it's fair that Chelsea fans aren't there, to be perfectly honest, but it surely can't be beyond the wit and wisdom of man or even the FA to come up with a way where tickets can be sold to Chelsea fans and none of the money goes to Chelsea Football Club. Um, If if the FA sells those tickets direct, then... I think you know the, the issue has been addressed. Um, the only outstanding issues would be in terms of presumably, you know, Chelsea have some form of loyalty point scheme. Are there GDPR issues outstanding with regards to that? Transferring the the, the data that Chelsea have on their fans to uh, the FA, right. but you know, for, for every for every problem, there's a solution. So, um, yeah, I, I it, it would. It, it would make sense. Let's, let's face it, Chelsea fans are going to find it easiest to get to that match compared to everybody else. Because I understand that <laughs> you've got problems at Palace. We have. Because uh, there's, there's no trains going to Victoria. Yeah. And as for the, you know, the, the, the complete ninniness of uh, having, uh, you know, the, the engineering works from the northwest to London have been flagged in advance for three to four months. 
um, to have Manchester City fans can get as far as uh, Milton Keynes and I think Liverpool fans can get as far as rugby or the other way around. Yeah. Um, and, and then, okay, you will, you will, there will be a workaround. You, know, you, can, you can go across to Sheffield and get a train down, but uh, yeah, we're talking... Yeah, we're talking forty to fifty thousand people coming down by train under normal circumstances, um, and, and do you want you know th- thousands of people uh, milling around on Rugby Station or Milton Keynes Station or Sheffield Station? Uh, and and the F- the FA the FA are between a devil and you know a rock and a hard place here because th- they they sold the, the deal of cup semi-finals taking place at Wembley as part of the Club Wembley Club Wembley package. Um, and people were saying, well, yeah, we're entitled to attend those matches um, and those matches have got to take place at Wembley. And also the FA are skin. Yeah. Um, well, the irony is at the moment that the only fans who won't have any trouble getting to Wembley are the ones that aren't allowed. Yes. Uh, technically at the moment. Uh, and again, it's one of those things I think semi-finals being played at Wembley is a terrible idea. A terrible idea every season except the season where you get to the semi-final. When I think it's one yes. of the best ideas ever. Um, I'm glad to hear you say that every problem has a solution. I've, I've got a meeting on Zoom with my agent this afternoon. So I shall tell him that you know, tell my accountant, Rob. I've got a meeting with my accountant. So I, I shall tell Bobby Numbers that you said for every solution there is a problem. Um, UEFA, Kieran, have published their new financial regulations. I know you've been like a kid at Christmas waiting for this to happen. <laughs> been hopping from foot to foot. Um, what do these new financial regulations mean in a nutshell? And it could be a big nutshell if you like, Kieran. I'm in a good mood. Okay. Um what we traditionally know as financial fair play, which is uh, based on a break-even model, i.e. you compare your revenue to your costs, and provided you don't lose more than €30 million Euro over three years, then all is tickety-boo. Um, it looks as if that's going to be replaced with um, a soft wage cap. And, and what I mean by a soft wage cap, it, it's not a case – we're not going to go to the NFL style where you're given a, a limit of, let's say, $180 million dollars to spend on wages. What uh, what will be the case is that if, if the noises are correct, and uh, you know this, this first came out from uh, Tarek Panja, who's who's New York Times journalist, who's uh, who's, who's, one, who's one of the you know the, the, the proper old school Rottweiler journalists, you know, really digs into stories. So he broke this story on Wednesday evening, and um, it looks as if it's going to be seventy percent of your seventy um, percent of your uh, turnover can be paid out in the form of uh, wages and amortization, um, and, and I I immediately plugged those numbers into uh, into my spreadsheet, and I think only Spurs of the current clubs in the Premier League would uh, satisfy those rules. So, is 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 this going to result in a in a in a significant change in terms of a reduction in spending, uh, I, th- I think that's what UEFA in an ideal world would like, um, but we don't we don't know. Um, and uh, what what's going to happen in terms of player sales? What's going to happen in terms of uh, valuing uh, sponsorship arrangements? Because now you've got to generate more money. Um, so so those are sort of sort of the technical issues. What's the practical issue? It means that. If you are a club who is presently in the Champions League, 
you are going to have a huge competitive advantage over those ambitious clubs. So the likes of you know Villa, Newcastle under the new owners, Leeds, West Ham, you know, the clubs that want to challenge, the clubs that want to break into the big six, um, they're going to find it very difficult indeed. Because if you are in the Champions League, that gives you from 2024-25, I estimate, you know, an, an increase of you know, you're getting an extra £50 million a year compared to uh, your Premier League money. Well, 70% of £50 million is £35 million. So instantly, those clubs that are already there have got a minimum of a £35 million advantage. If you get to the finals of the Champions League, it's probably worth £150 million. So you take you take 70% of that, um, you know, and therefore you've got an, uh, £100 million to spend on wages and amortisation. So it bakes in the existing gaps within football and the aim uh, and, and though they won't be explicit about it, the aim of this is to maintain the status quo. Is, is there no scenario whereby the Premier League says we we would rather have our own system than yours, Mister UEFA? Well, the, the, the Premier League are perfectly entitled to do that, but uh, at, at present, the Premier League rules in respect of profitability and sustainability are different to those of UEFA, and. That's fine um, unless you end up in the situation that we we had recently with Wolves a couple of seasons ago, which we were discussing on the show last week, is that Wolves were – they sailed through the the Premier League rules – and when it came to the UEFA rules, they were in breach, which resulted in in uh, in restraints of their ability uh, to to compete within Europe. Uh, talking of competing, Manchester City are locked into a thrilling race for the title. A thrilling race for the title, as they say on Sky. Thrilling, but they've already come top of one league, Kira, haven't they? Yes, um, Deloitte, the uh, financial adver- ad- advisory firm, they bring out their annual money league. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, City. I think they. I think they jumped from fifth to first. Um, so they are now. People say they're the richest club in football. Um, a lot depends on how you define rich. Uh, we we have a saying in the world of finance that, that what, what we're looking at here is is revenue. And uh, there's a saying that, that that revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is reality. So City um, have generated more revenue than than any other club. Um, and part of the reason for that is that they are less dependent upon gate receipts than the other big clubs in Europe, because uh, you know the Etihad does have a capacity of fifty four thousand, which is a decent capacity stadium. But Manchester City, um, their their ticket prices are are very competitive. Um, they don't have the same quantity of tourist fans of of players of fans who will fly into Manchester that the likes of um, you know, Real Madrid or Manchester United or Liverpool will have, and therefore they 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 can't empty the wallets of those fans to the same extent. So. City were less impacted by COVID, um, and that meant that their their uh, broadcast revenues on on the back of winning the Premier League, plus of course getting to the the uh, Champions League final, that their broadcast revenues were very high, and their uh, their uh, commercial income was high as well because a lot of their commercial deals are are based overseas, and and, and we did we weren't seeing the the commercial partners either asking for discounts or pulling out. So what was that? Revenue is vanity. Revenue is vanity. Yeah. 
Profit is sanity. Cash mm-hmm. is a reality. So it's a good chat up line. Um, it, it, ne- never got me anywhere. But, well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing it down because I'm thinking of getting a new tattoo and I might put that on the shortlist. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll confuse the little fella in Hoxton. Um, I don't believe, Kieran, Celtic and Rangers have ever played each other outside Scotland. Uh, and judging by the response on Saturday, it doesn't seem that Rangers fans are keen for it to happen for a first time. Yes, um, they uh, they have both signed deals to appear. I think this is in November, so I think this is uh, either on the back of or, or sort of overlapping the, uh, the the FIFA World Cup. But um, they they've signed a deal to play in the Sydney Super Cup with two other teams. Um, he was, a, I believe, he was a carry on character, wasn't he? Sydney Super Cup. Yes, very good. Yeah. Yes. If they if they had a football carry on film, Sydney Super Cup would have been the referee without any doubt. <laughs> um, and uh, there's been there's been, I think it's fair to say, a, a lot of pushback uh, in respect of this um, from both fans of Rangers and Celtic. Um, I, I think some of the fans feel that this match is so special that it should not be hawked around yes. uh, as, as they see it. Um, looking at the comments which have come back from, from the Rangers board, um, they've said we can earn more money um, from the, the rights and, and, and the, the broadcast deal in respect of this one match than we can for a whole season of SPFL money. Uh, so you know, we're looking at it from a financial point of view. This will allow us to reinvest in the squad. Um, so from a, from a financial decision, uh, you, you can see the rationale behind it. Uh, Celtic fans don't appear to be over keen as well. I was having a, a chat with uh, somebody who is, I think, Jerry uh, Rangers. Oh, no, Jerry from, from Australia saying, what's the reaction of the fans down there? Because both Rangers and Celtic have got huge fan bases yeah. down there. And they're saying, no, we don't want it either. Oh. So we'll, we'll watch it. But we don't we don't want it because um, they they like the idea of sort of you know the it, it part of that excitement of a Rangers and Celtic match is it takes place at Ibrox or Celtic Park where and and this is one of the this this is on my bucket list I want to go I want to attend one of those matches before I die because you hear so much about the atmosphere there or Hamden where you've got a cup final yeah. um, and and they feel it would be sort of diluting uh, that part of it. Um, so, so there is there is certainly a pushback from the fans, the boards saying, "Well, just think about the money. You know, we want to be competing in Europe. We want to be in the Champions League next season." Um, so, yeah, there's uh, uh, daggers are drawn at each other's throats. I think it's fair to say between uh, c- certainly in terms of the Rangers fans, they they seem uh, in particular aggrieved, and that might be linked to that uh, the Ange, the uh, the Celtic manager, is Australian, and it is being marketed, or it has been quasi marketed as his homecoming to yeah. Australia. And Rangers fans are going, hold on, hold on, you know, if we we don't want to be involved in in a homecoming for for a, for a Celtic manager. Yeah, their game against Dundee United was uh, delayed by several instance of stuff being thrown on the pitch uh, which of course you don't want to encourage but it's always funny when it happens uh, if it's tennis balls it's great it's, of course yeah. it is uh, 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 do Celtic and Rangers because uh, uh, talking about this to fans of big clubs in England of course they're very used to their clubs Liverpool, Arsenal, Man U, Man City Ever, uh, yeah, they, they're used to their clubs going off the other side of the world in summer to take part in meaningless tournaments so do, do Celtic and Rangers not tend to do that on an annual basis anyway? 
Um, they they will tour, but um, you know they're not particularly. If, if they're touring Europe, they're they're quite relaxed and quite and quite often. You know, Celtic, as we know, have got a, uh, you know, got close links to 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 sort of the Irish community, and you know, go, going to Australia. Sorry, going going to uh, America. There's some big Irish. Uh, clans in in uh, you know in various cities in in the US. So you can see the you can see the benefits of that from from a marketing from a uh, from a commercial generation point of view. Uh, but I think the fans of both clubs feel the fixture itself is so sacrosanct that they only want it to be taking place uh, in in Glasgow. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, I've not been to an old firm derby. I've been to a Hibs Hearts game twice cool. at, at both stadiums. <clears throat> that was tasty enough, thank you. So yes. <laughs> I, f- I feel I should work my way up to an old firm game. Uh, possibly best, better if I went to one at Celtic rather than Rangers for obvious reasons. Uh, I like I like that. That's masterful teacher's understatement there. Celtic, of course, have close links with the Irish community, which is indeed one way of putting it. Um, uh, two clubs, Kieran, have, have uh, held your birthday present over for a couple of weeks because uh, we did we did say to them, don't all publish your accounts at once. Just hold a couple over. It's a little treat, like giving them a present on Boxing Day. His eyes will light up because he thinks he's had them all. But Southampton and Middlesbrough have both published their latest accounts. Yeah, and I think what what disturbs me about this is is the normalization of losing huge sums of money so yeah. um southampton lost 22 million pounds that's 400 grand a week yeah and i looked at those uh, that's not too bad um and, and I've, I've looked at their accounts you know we, we we've we've had you know we, we've got our discussion with craig honeyman but which we, we which we've already had um uh, we, we in terms of recording and uh you know craig was saying that uh, the the rationale of Clubs gambling to get to the Premier League and then thinking their problems are over is is, is a myth, yeah. um, and is absolutely right. Um, Southampton have been in the Premier League now consecutively for eight seasons, and in seven of those seasons, they've lost money. Now, that's that's nuts. Yeah, what what if, if you're chasing if you're chasing the rainbow, if you're chasing this this sort of this myth of you get to the Premier League and you become rich, actually. That's not the case because you get to the Premier League and then then it could cost you a fortune to try to avoid relegation. So uh, it, it is crazy. I mean, admittedly, you know, Southampton have managed to to cover those losses in some years through player sales, but for any business to to have a you know to have a, an increase in revenue of five or six times the amount and still to be losing money on a day to day basis just shows how uh, how how crazy football is. But unfortunately, Kieran, you're going to be seeing this for the next five or six years because COVID is a fantastic excuse, isn't it, for normalising losses? In, in yeah. half a decade's time, clubs will still be saying, "Well, we're recovering from from the pandemic," and that's that's going to be a handy little yeah. safety blanket for some of them, isn't it? Yeah, and it's I mean, it's the same with Borough. Yeah, Borough, Borough lost thirty million pounds, and you go, "Yeah, it's okay." Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You know, and Steve Gibson is is one of those owners that is prepared to. Uh, you know, to, to cover those losses, and and you know, and, and I think uh, you know, uh, and Craig Craig's a Borough fan himself, uh, was saying that there's not that many of those owners around. Yeah. But uh, you know, hats off, hats off to Steve Gibson because he's been doing it for a long time. Well, see, I'm going to blame the accountants here, Kieran. If, the sooner you people stop saying, "Oh, that's okay," the better. Um, why have I got the only accountant in the country who doesn't go, "Oh, that's okay"? That's, something needs looking at here, Kieran, isn't it? <laughs> I need one of those accountants who just look at Southampton's accounts and go, yeah, it's all right, 20 million, that's fine, sort that out. Um, some good news for Derby, possibly, with some possible financial help coming in, but it's from boxing, not from football. 
Yes, um, this is the uh, Zach Parker versus the Andrade fight. Uh, it's taking place in May. I, th- I think tickets go on sale at the end of this month. It's yeah. taking place at Pride Park. Uh, Zach Parker, uh, I believe, is uh, a big, uh, big Derby County fan, and uh, he said that yeah, ten pounds per ticket is is going <coughs> to Derby County, right. which, is, which is a fantastic gesture. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be uh, a. A, a night to remember, you know, you know a bo- boxing at a football ground does generate its own different atmosphere to what we see at football. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's very generous of, of him uh, to, to, to make, to make that commitment to the club that he loves. And I, I think it shows that, that football is, is something which, which people do hold so dear that they're willing to, 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 to show such gen- generosity. Is, is that something, Kieran, talking as a, an ex-administrator yourself? I mean, is, is that a way of funding that administrators would look at and say, well, why don't we hawk the, the ground around for, for bands or for concerts? Or, you know, because you, even if you raised 20 grand, 30 grand, that's, a, that's, a, that's a half a player's wage, isn't it? So it's not bad. Yeah, it, it is not bad. I, I think if, if we take a look at the, the type of bands who you'd need, you know, Derby County, you'd be, you'd be able to get 30, you know, 25, 30,000 people ah, to attend. Yeah, fair point, yeah. Tours, tours are organised way in advance. It's, yeah. uh, you know, it, 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 we, we, we've, we, we've set up enough advance notice for the price of football live. Yeah. And, and we're, we're not selling out 25,000 seater venues yet. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, so, so for, for a band to, to be able to do it, um, you know th- those tours are normally sorted. You know, twelve eighteen months in advance, uh, which was prior to the appointment of the, the, the administrators. Yeah, <clears throat> let's face it, Kieran. The sort of bands we go and see that that, that UK subs tribute act isn't going to fill out Derby <laughs> County's ground, is it? Um, our last, <coughs> excuse me, our last news story, Kieran. Uh, I'm willing to bet that these two clubs have never been mentioned in the same sentence before. In fact, I'm willing to bet quite a large amount of money. I don't think even Jeff Stelling will have mentioned these two clubs in the same breath before. But Dartford FC and Albion Rovers both made a profit in the last financial year. And this will be – I'm going to regret this because I'm going to get loads of tweets from both Dartford <laughs> fans and Albion fans saying, oh, you're forgetting when we played them in the three-season friend. They don't speak like that, but you know what I'm talking about. They <laughs> certainly not in Dartford. They will, <laughs> yeah, you're forgetting that pre-season friend. They all talk like Uncle Terry down in Dartford, don't they? they all, <laughs> most of them are retired taxi drivers, I'm guessing, which I've, I've, annoyed, the, I've annoyed the fan base of two great clubs. Uh, but there, there will have been some pre-season friendly, no doubt, or some tournament they played each other. But it's good news anyway, Kieran, that both of those, we're talking about Southampton and Borough Losing large amounts of money, but here we have clubs at the lower end of their particular pyramids making a bit of profit. Yes, and it's it's good in the sense that it gives us sustainability. Remember, a couple of years ago, we were in genuine fear of the future of the ninety-two yeah. and the clubs in the national league and clubs in Scotland and so on. Um, and, and what we've seen here is is a couple of clubs. You know, Dart- Dartford made thirty grand of profit. Albion Rovers made ninety grand profit. But it's the fact that they're not losing money. Um, this and and I've said this about Scottish football uh, on, on many an occasion. Um, the clubs there set out to be around in five and ten years' time. They yeah. don't. They don't gamble. Um, and, and that's certainly linked to. They've not got cliff edges. They've got slopes in Scotland yeah. in terms of distribution. So, so why gamble to get an extra twenty grand? You, you know, as opposed to in the Premier League, you or in the Championship, you gamble to get an extra hundred million in TV money. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Dartford in the National League, uh, they 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 did okay, and uh, Albion Rovers 
uh, yeah, they've they've utilised furlough. They will have utilised some of the grants that were paid out, and so on. But that, that's what they're there for. That, yeah, that that was the whole point about to give to give these organisations a soft landing and and to make sure that they're around to to represent their. Uh, their, their history and heritage and, and the local community on a long-term basis. Yeah, and, and oddly enough, the finances of Scottish football crop up in our interview, Kieran. And mm. Craig Honeyman is a well-known and respected football agent. Yes, I said respected. Uh, and he very kindly agreed to answer some of the questions put to him by you lovely listeners. I haven't quite established from producer guy whether that means he won't answer my questions. So <laughs> <laughs> let's find out. that time of year and our friends at manscaped have the best tools for some spring cleaning in your pants time to clear out that winter bush and join the other four million men who trust manscaped just use code price of football to get 20 percent off and free shipping at manscaped.com and now they've got a ball care bundle you'll find that their lawnmower 4.0 trimmer weed whacker ear and nose hair trimmer and let's face it at our age we're getting hair growing in strange places and it, and it needs it needs some weed whacking the crop preserver ball deodorant the crop reviver toner for downstairs the performance boxer briefs and a travel bag to hold your goodies and if you purchase now you'll also get two free gifts the performance boxer briefs and the shed travel bag yeah, there's a heat wave coming, so you want to be smooth for that. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code PRICEOFOOTBALL at manscaped.com now. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code PRICEOFOOTBALL at manscaped.com. Time to throw out your old hygiene habits and upgrade your life. I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Craig, thank you very much for joining us. I'm not entirely sure whether uh, Guy wanted listeners to get involved because he doesn't trust me to come up with new questions. But before we got onto those questions, can I just ask you a couple of things myself for context? Um, I believe, Craig, that we both have a background in HR, in which case you've done a lot better out of it than I have. So how did you become a football agent? You, you know what, Kevin, that's a great question because I, I did Google you for some, some context uh, I, and uh, I, I read the funny line that you're the only uh, comedian with a qualification in HR. So that, that made me uh, that made me chuckle. Well, yeah, the, uh, the, tr- the trouble is, unfortunately, it was so long ago, it wasn't even HR then. It was still personnel. Wow. I know, wow. I know. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, yeah, so we, we we come from the same background. Then you know that that whole CIPD background, which was uh, which was great, really, give me a, a great grounding. I've got I've got to say. Um, and before getting into football, I, I worked in a a really uh, heavily unionised environment. 
which was incredibly tough as a as a young man. I was a young HR manager in my early to, to mid twenties, dealing with vastly experienced uh, trade union officials that were in the late forties, early fifties, yeah. and they gave me the runaround to some degree. So that was that was a real good grounding. Um, and in terms of getting into football, I've got to say I was completely in the right place at the right time. And uh, I was doing a, a NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming course, oh, yeah. with the hypnotist Paul McKenna uh, wow. and David Bandler down in London. And uh, in, in a breakout group, um, I was working with a, with a woman called Lisa Anderson. Uh, Lisa was great. Uh, and just a throwaway comment, she said, you, you should meet my husband, uh, Jerome Anderson. And it, it meant nothing to me at that time, I've got to say. Um, and I went home and, and Googled Jerome and realised that he was the chairman, chief executive of the Sport Entertainment and Media Group, who represented Thierry Henry, amongst others. Um, <clears throat> I went to London, met with him. Uh, he offered me a job on half the salary that I was earning um, on a 12-month contract. And I took a huge gamble. And that was 18 years ago. Wow. Um we do have a similar background then because I, I worked for the ambulance service and one of the trade union leaders we had to deal with uh, on a weekly basis was Jeremy Corbyn. Um, wow. Whose response to most questions was no. Uh, even we used to tease him every now and again and say, did you fancy a 20% pay rise? He'd go, no. <laughs> uh, Brilliant. And also, by sheer coincidence, I think my wife probably stage managed that course you did with Paul McKenna she did a wow. lot I know this is spooky this this one isn't it I saw an interview with you uh, Craig a while back saying and, and I quote here that you could go to work as a postman on Saturday then start as an agent on Monday is it is it still too easy to become a football agent yes um the deregulation occurred um and and what happened with that really was you know the, the a, a guy could in effect a guy or a girl could go in into work as a postman or a postwoman on a on a friday uh wrap that job in friday night uh, register to become an intermediary with the fa pay the 500 quid and there you go they're off and running and that's it it's, it's still it's still that easy to become an agent Yes, it is. Wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 listen, it, it, it's, it's crazy, Kevin, really. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and, and look, there's a lot of people, Kevin, the reality is a lot of people that have, that have done that, that have finished work as, as whatever, some people as accountants, some as lawyers, uh, some as postmen, some as w- whatever, um, and they've never done a deal in their lives, um, yet they are a registered intermediary with the, with the FA. Wow. Well, one of the big issues in my industry, uh, Craig, in comedy and theatre is traditionally agents will take on a bunch of young comics or actors in the hope that one of them might succeed or purely to stop another agent getting them. You'll often hear somebody say, I'm on the back burner now. Is, does that happen in football? Do you, do you get an agent that just says, well, he'll go to a club and just say, I'll, I'll, have, I'll have your 10 best 18-year-olds? Unfortunately, Kevin, yes, it does. Um, so if, if you look at the the, the real big um, agencies now, they're like juggernauts, to be very honest with you. Um, so so going back, I, I worked for the SEM group for, for 10 years. And, and at that time, we were one of the one of the biggest in Europe. Um, uh, some of the, the, the bigger fish, um, you know, surpassed that uh, definitely. And there's a lot of a lot of them have been sold to to larger, uh, sometimes uh, American corporations. Um, who've got uh, other sports personalities on on their books, and and I, I think from personal experience, Kevin, what these big companies do 
is they'll go and sign a hundred young players in the hope that one makes it to yeah. become a Premier League superstar, and then they're happy with that. So, if if for example, because you you sort of use the phrase boutique about your agency, if for example, yeah. if you had a a promising seventeen year old uh, left winger for let's use an old fashioned sense. And, yeah. and another one became available. Would you say, well, I've already got one. I need to concentrate on the one that I've got. Yeah, so it, it's it's something that we we've always been very conscious of, uh, my, my colleagues and I. Uh, you know, we are now bespoke, we're boutique, we're small, or we're agile, we're flexible. Um, but we couldn't have two players that played the same position at the same club. Um, so, for example, if we had you know, to use if we had a nineteen-year-old left winger that's playing for for the first team of a of a League One club, and he's going to move on and become uh, a high-profile player or potentially a high-profile player, it would be unethical, really, to have a eighteen-year-old or seventeen-year-old left winger that plays the same position right. behind them. Because how can you possibly go in and and, and bat for both players? It's uh, I don't think you can personally. Do you know, I think a lot of our listeners will be surprised to hear you say that, Craig. But I think that's it's reflects very well on your agency. Now, the last question for me is that one of the complaints you often hear from, shall we say, more traditional managers, uh, shall we say, the Allardyce Hodgson end of the scale, is that twelve-year-olds have got agents now. It's impossible to deal with them. Twelve-year-olds have got agents. What's the youngest you take a player on? Yeah, so the, the, the rules are really clear. Uh, you, you can't sign a player the, the year before their 16th birthday, okay? So the, the, the year that a player is turning 16, that is when they can sign with an agent. But in <laughs> in defence of, of Allardyce and, uh, and Hodgson, etc., they are quite right that some are getting around these rules and, and representing and moving young players. So, so what happens? Will an unscrupulous agent make friends with the, the parents or the parent or the guardian at the age of sort of 12 and just make themselves known by the odd bunch of flowers? Um, listen, I, I, I've not done it, so I don't know in, in, <laughs> is, 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 is the reality to that. Um, but look, these, these players, these young, young elite players are, are all attached to academies now. So um, those, these academies up and down the country are youth systems, elite development programs, and, and people go and watch them play. Um, and everyone knows who the, the, the next big thing is, you know, y- years before. Yeah. So if you, if you go back some, some years, um, you know, I, I was acutely aware of Phil Forden at the age of 14, um, that he was going to be, or had the potential to be, shall we say, sensational. Um, and I think he he has become a, a sensational football player. Um, so yeah, the, these 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 young guys that you see that that do move. And I, look, I I actually think it's wrong. Um, I actually think it's wrong that players are moving at 12, 13, 14, uh, 15. And if we go back in time before E Triple P, uh, you know certainly we'll all remember when um, uh, there was a move from Notts County to Arsenal for about 2.5 million for a, a 15, 16 yeah. year old Jermaine Pennant. We, yeah. we, we'll remember that. Um, obviously that, that move wouldn't occur now because of the triple P rules uh, that get a fraction of, of that fee for, for that player. Um, but I, I actually think if you're assigned to a club and you're developing at that particular club, um, 
so long as everything's going well for you, you you should stay at that club. Now, if you get to 16 plus and you can move to better training facilities, potentially better coaches, totally understand why a player and their family would want to take that move. Particularly, let's say, look at a real life example. You, you're with a, a, a team in the conference or a team in League Two and you're 16 and a Premier League academy wants to sign you, that, that makes sense for everyone. It makes sense for the club to to cash in and, and take some money for that young player. Uh, it makes sense for the player to move to that club to test themselves in a in a, in a better environment. The, the only flip side to that, guys, is that um, it's highly unlikely that the player would come through at the club that they moved to. Uh, and, and statistics back me up on this, where if maybe they stayed at the smaller club, they'd had more more chance of coming through and playing first-team football at that particular club. So it swings and roundabouts in, in terms of young players moving. You're not a bad talent spotter yourself. I think it was, was it 2013 you tweeted, look out for a young lad called Mohamed Salah? Yeah, listen, I, I, I love Salah. I was, I was made aware of Salah by, by I've done a lot of business in Egypt historically uh, and, and my Egyptian business partner made me aware of him and, and sent me some footage. And at the time, he, he was a raw winger. He was a raw left winger, which had blistering pace. He didn't have anywhere near the goal scoring record or, or technique that he's got. Now I've got to say, he was just so raw, but he looked an amazing talent. I've, I've, I've got to, I've got to say that. Um, and he's, look, he's, he's really has pushed on to become, in my opinion, right now, the best player in the world. I, I agree. I, th- I think he scored in every game he's played against Palace, which is, it's not always been that difficult to do, but it's not a bad thing. Now let's get on to some of the listeners' questions, sure. Craig. Um, and they're all, they're all. Intelligent questions asked in good faith, I think. Yeah, of um, course. The, the first one comes from Richard Hunt, and he asked a question that I think perplexes most football fans. Agents, it seems, says Richard, can be paid by the employer and the employee, i.e. the club and the player. Isn't this a recipe for a conflict of interest? And Laurie Roberts elaborates, saying, surely agents should only be paid out of a sign-in-on fee or wages of the player they're working for. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a good point. I think it it's a little bit of misunderstanding, Kevin. If 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 I'm honest, yeah. Um, so the reality is, when a player moves or signs a new contract um, with a club, now there have been there have been three things that have happened in in that scenario, right? So let's let's look at them in each in each in each. Scenario conceptually. So a club wants a player to stay at that club, right? So they're, they're offering that player a new contract and they, they see value in that player. So if the agent is then negotiating the, the contract for the player, uh, they're in effect working for both the player and the club yeah. because the club wants to retain the services of the player. The player wants to stay, the, the agent negotiates the terms and then what tends to happen and this is a little bit of a a misunderstanding is the agent is paid by the club for that transaction and then the player is taxed appropriately on the amount of money that the agent receives and I think that's a real misunderstanding and miscomprehension in terms of what people think uh, or how people think an agent earns their money. What do you think then Craig that the agent's role is probably the least understood in football. Kieran and I were discussing on the pod last week the notion that fans in general, I don't think, resent the money that players earn. 
I think they understand that players are doing a really good job and they deserve the money and they, especially they're playing for their club and winning them games. But fans do tend to resent any money that agents earn. And is that, you think, because they don't fundamentally understand what your role is in football? I think it's part of that. I think there's, there's also been a media agenda, uh, which has been anti-agent, if, yeah. if, if I'm honest. I think they've been a, an easy target. And look, gents, there, there are some absolutely fantastic people that work in my industry, some really bright, dynamic uh, individuals um, that are super smart and, and, and work very well for their clients. There are also some unscrupulous people that yeah. work in this industry and see it as an easy way to to earn uh, and flip money. Um, so listen, it, it, it's like I guess if if you're a you're a you're a builder or a plumber or, or there are, there are good and bad, uh, and invariably you all get um, uh, treated the same in terms of from from the media or, or perception wise. Uh, and there isn't a trust pilot for agents. You yeah. know, that, that doesn't that doesn't <laughs> exist. Yeah. Well, Kieran's an accountant. I'm a comedian, so we're in a massive glass house when it comes to not throwing stones about unscru- <laughs> unscrupulous people in our business. Um, Mark Collins has a very interesting question, and it's one that's not focused on finance, which I'm pleased to, to see. Mark Collins says, when a player comes to the end of their career, does the relationship with the agent immediately terminate, or does the agent continue to provide support as they adjust to normal life. And the reason I think it's such a good question is that I know Neil Ruddock quite well, and I've spoken to him at length about how difficult he found it when he left football, not just psychologically leaving the dressing room behind, but actually physically doing stuff like going to the dentist or, or, or getting access yeah. to his own bank account. So, so would, you know, are, you, are you with a player all the way through and, and, and beyond? That's a great question. Um, who, who asked the question, was it? There's a, Czech, it- a listener called Mark Collins. Yeah, Mark, that's a, that, that's a that's a really good question, uh, and I, I guess it it depends, uh, Kevin. Because if if, I, if I'm very honest now, if I look at the the 18 years I've been working in football, um, some players you can speak to every single day. Yeah. Okay. Some players you can have WhatsApp conversations with, or back in the day, BlackBerry Messenger. Remember BlackBerry, where we had the, the BBM. You know, they, they, that was that was the start, I guess, of of the the players communicating via via messaging applications. And look, I, I communicate with players on a on a regular basis. There are some players that I've looked after that don't want to communicate. If I'm being very honest, right. and and each to their own, uh, and and. Some players want want you to be involved in their lives. Some players want you just to step forward and and, and broker their deals at that time. You know, I've got a long-standing client who is more than a client, be a friend for life. Uh, I went to his wedding a couple of years ago. Um, When he finishes playing, I'll be involved in his life going forward. Um, And a a friend of mine who retired playing a couple of years ago, he he enjoyed his 40th birthday uh, a couple of weeks back. His wife contacted me and asked me if I can organise a few of the lads that he played with and myself to to make him a happy, happy birthday video, which we we all gladly, gladly did. And I guess at the end of at the end of a footballer's career, have we been there? Yes. Um, sometimes people stay in in the game as yep. as in, in coaching roles or or managerial roles. Um, sometimes people drop out of the game altogether. Sometimes people stay in, in the in the media spotlight. But listen, I watched uh, I watched an interview with Razor Ruddock um, some some years back, 
Uh, and he made some very good points about, you know, having been in, involved in a professional football club for, for all his life, he'd never had to make a, a dentist appointment. Yeah. He'd never yeah. had to make a, a doctor's appointment. Uh, getting things like cars, finance, all that was done for either by his agent or somebody at the club. And then he steps away from football and that's not there anymore. Um, and I think it's, it's something that not just agents, um, but I think clubs, uh, the Premier League, the Football League and the FA uh, should work on to make sure that players are better serviced mm. when they leave the game. Now, whether they leave the game at 18, 19, having, having not been offered professional terms, uh, I know that Crystal Palace have recently uh, done something in this we, regard, we which, have, should yeah. be, which should be hugely uh, uh, applauded. Um you know, and I think everyone can do a little bit more with this. It was it was a really really great great question by by Mark. Um, certainly, you know, I, I can only speak from personal experience. I've been there for for players when they've when they've finished their careers. Uh, one is out in South America now, who's just set up his own business uh, doing international removals. Um, so I've given him a little bit of of business advice and, and guidance and and support um, and put him in contact with, with, with certain people where, where I can help. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've, we've earned money from these people during their careers as clients and we should be there to give back. I think it's a great question by Mark. It is. We've got another Mark asking the question. And again, it's a great question, but uh, let's just say that Mark Collins's question was a little bit of a sorbet to Mark Jones's question. <laughs> okay. it's, it's, it's more typical of the sort of question we've had a lot of, to be perfectly honest. And Mark Jones says, oh, I read that. And you'd be amazed, Craig, how many of our questions start with those words. I read that. Yeah. I read that um, through Paul Pogba's transfer from Juventus to Man United, his, his agent, Mino Rayola, earned £41 million through various fees, commission and add-ons, even though Juve wanted to sell and United wanted to buy, so he didn't have to do much. Would Pogba have got any of that money? And if not, why would a player accept an agent getting that much money on the back of his own talent and hard work? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, in terms of Mino, I, I I don't know Mino personally uh, at all. Uh, I, I have followed his career. Um, in terms of this particular transfer, we've we've got to go back in time a little bit, guys. Paul Pogba left Manchester United to go to Juventus um, after his contract, ironically. Had run down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and Manchester United, on the back of that transaction, received only around £1.5 to £2 million in compensation. That was it. And this is for one of the best young players in the world. Okay. So when he signed for Juventus, my understanding is that Mino Raiola negotiated terms with Juventus that should they sell him for a certain fee, that he would receive an amount of that fee. Now, this was before transfer fees were hugely inflated. And let's be very honest, gents, they're a little bit out of control, yeah. transfer fees. You know, 80, 90, 100 million. I think Pogba at the time was around 90 million pounds and was a was a world record transfer fee at that time. So if you look at it from Juventus' perspective, they signed a player for 1.5 to 2 million and then sold him for ninety million, and Mina Raiola brokered that transaction in in terms of taking him to 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 Juve. Yeah. Um, so he helped them achieve um, 
a fee of eighty-eight million pounds. Um, now, I am pretty sure that when he brokered that deal, I don't know, I don't know, I wasn't involved, but I am pretty sure that Juventus didn't believe that in three, four years' time that they would be selling Paul Pogba for ninety million pounds. Yeah, fair point. So they they will have been pretty happy at that time to say if we achieve this kind of fee, then we're happy to pay you this ridiculous fee in return. Because I don't think anyone really thought that that fee would be achieved. Uh, it was. And that's where I believe uh, Milo earned his money. In terms of Paul Pogba, uh, Milo Raiola is not allowed, like all agents, to pay players uh, any of the money that, that they receive. It wouldn't be abnormal, gentlemen, uh, for a player to have a clause in their contract that if certain fees are achieved, that they can be paid an amount of those fees. It wouldn't be abnormal, okay. No, no, it would not. Listen, if, if, if you go, if you look at that kind of transaction, so a player going on a, on a Bosman or for a relatively small fee, um, it, it can be negotiated when they sign their contract that if they're sold uh, above and beyond a, a certain amount of money, that may be 5% or 10% of the the total amount of profit uh, is is paid to the player. That wouldn't be abnormal. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, three questions left, Craig. Uh, thank you again yep. for your time. The first one uh, comes from Robert McPherson. And again, it's another interesting one. Robert says, my club, Ross County, pay wages below that of the conference in England. But how much value would agents give to moving to up to the, what he describes as the greatest team north of the Keswick Bridge, <laughs> given that exposure in the SPL is much greater than it might be in English lower leagues? So, for example, Ross Stewart moved to England after a good season with Ross County yeah. and is now in the Scotland squad. This season, we've got Charles Regan Cook, who must be on more shopping lists after playing out of his skin for us. Or do English agents and scouts not tend to look things like that is there a mindset where by English agents and scouts think English football is the only place for an English player to be again a, a, a great question uh, my personal opinion is the Scottish Premiership is a fantastic shop window for talent oh okay um, and the the, the the reason for that is if I don't know if you guys watch much of the Scottish Premiership yeah, yeah. Um, okay if, if, you, if you look at Celtic and Rangers are on a different planet. We we all agree on that to to everyone else because of the the finances and the the, the pull those clubs have. However, if you look at a team like Hibernian, uh, Hearts, um, or, or Aberdeen, there's there's a lot of quality in in these teams. Um, but you, you, if if you look at the starting eleven uh, and, and and dissect the quality, you, you've probably got some players that are championship level. You've got a lot of players that are League One and League Two level. And you've got a few that are, that are conference yeah. type level, all in the same team. So my opinion on the on, on, on the Scottish Premiership is if you're a forward-thinking young English player um, and you're not getting minutes in England, then get yourself up to Scotland and, and play and put yourself in, in, in that shop window. And it could be that you only need one good season before you get you get a move. I think Ross Stewart's a great example. Yeah. I think he's probably Sunderland's biggest asset now. He's also got the the best nickname in football. I, I don't know if you, you guys are aware of his nickname. No. The Loch Ness Drogba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a I have to say that is a very good nickname, but as a as a Palace fan, I'm on a bound to point out that Fitz Hall had the best nickname in football. 
which was Fitzall's nickname, of course, was One Size. Which was, <laughs> which was <it. laughs> um, so just two more questions. The first one comes from another Mark, funnily enough. It's Mark Cole. And Mark is one of our many American listeners who provide us with interesting comparisons between our sports and their sports. And Mark says, in major US sports, agents have become very tightly regulated over the years, especially in regard to fees and commissions, where it's a cap to a relatively small percentage of the deal, usually under 5%. Would attempts to do this in European football ever be allowed to happen by the super agents? And in brackets, you know who they are. Listen, it, it, it's a... Again, it's a very good question. Um, I, I guess if you look at the numbers in American sports, what uh, baseball players, basketball players, NFL players are earning at the at the top level, it is sensational money. It is, uh, it, it you know, we, we say there's. I think there's a. I, I don't know why this this occurs, but we, we had it last year with the government, didn't we? Whenever there's there's an issue, or it, it's footballers are paid too much. Premier League footballers are, are, are overpaid, and you're like, well, hold hold on a second. They're paid relative to um, the, the the sport and and the product and the and the business. Now, you know, American sports stars are the same. Yeah. In in, in terms of, I, I don't necessarily agree with um, with. With percentages and 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 fixing them, and and the reason for that is, um, if you're working with a, a League One club or a League Two club or or a Commons club, which many agents are, and, and some some smaller or startup agencies are, then why should they be limited? If they've done a, if they've broken a brilliant deal, yeah. uh, and the players happy with that deal, and the clubs happy. Why should they be limited to three, four uh, percent of that deal when when maybe it's more akin that they should be getting ten percent? Now, if you fast forward and get to the the very elite level, uh, Premier League and Champions League, um, I, I think I think what could happen is that caps are put on rather than percentages, so that um, agents are not allowed to earn any more than a certain amount of of money, and that would make a lot of sense if if that happened across the leagues and was um, widely accepted. Um, but but again, it it would need to be. You recall a, a couple of years ago, guys, when um, the English clubs decided to close the transfer window early um, compared to the European counterparts and hope that they'd follow follow suit, and they didn't. Uh, and mm. what they did was they they hamstrung themselves. Because they weren't able to buy any more players, uh, but other clubs in Europe were still able to sign their players or sign other players. It just made absolutely no sense why that that occurred. Um, and I honestly think that was a, a player to get everyone to sign up to the same transfer window closing before the first game of the season. Obviously, that that didn't work. So any kind of regulation would have to be um, sport-wide. So it would have to be put in by FIFA. Uh, and and then accepted by uh, UEFA uh, and the the governing bodies in 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 South America uh, and and in Africa. So you have uh, a consistent approach. I can't see that happening overnight, to be honest with you. Um, but I think uh, tighter regulation isn't a bad idea. I'm going to bring Kieran in on that, Craig, because that's a it's it's quite a bold a ballsy statement for an agent to make. Kieran, can you ever see that? That being accepted, that there'd be a cap on how much an agent can earn. I think it would be 
very difficult to do that on on a FIFA wide level. Right. And remember, you know, as, as Craig knows, that it, we are dealing with a global market these days yeah. because. If you say we're going to put a cap on uh, an agent's fee at a gross level, you've got different tax systems, you've got different allowances in different countries, we've got different cultures in different countries as well. Uh, you know, the, the issue I've, I've always had is that I, I speak to quite a few players and former players. I, I've never heard a player moan about an agent. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you know, wh- yeah. why why are we so concerned about agents as fans? Because the agent has got nothing to do with my day to day life. He's he's there to represent the player, and uh, or she's there to represent the player. And, and I don't I don't hear the players moaning. I hear I hear club owners moaning, but you know they, they nobody forces them to pay the wages either. Well, yeah, it's strange, that, yeah, because no club owner moaned more about agents than Simon Jordan, and it turned out we'd be better off with an agent running the club than Simon Jordan. But uh, it, it's interesting to hear. Kieran, say that, Craig, because we have there's been one or two high profile players recently saying that they instead of using agents, they're going to use lawyers or solicitors mm-hmm. for for financial deals and, and not necessarily use an agent on a day to day basis. That must be a worrying development for you, is it? I, I don't think so, um, Kevin. I, I think the, the 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 two or three players that have come out and said this are absolutely elite. You right. know, yeah. I, 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 and um, we're talking on the world stage, um, and I, I've got to say, these these players will uh, have their market value, which will be exceptional compared to the day to day player. So, if it's let's say for argument's sake, that's one percent of players globally that are going down this route. Um, listen, hats off to them, and 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 good luck to them, but. Do they not think that the accountants are going to get paid and the lawyers are going to get paid yeah. uh, be, be, because they are? Uh, and and let me tell you, you know, a, a lawyer who's charging, let's say a lawyer charging three hundred pounds or five hundred pounds an hour for being an exceptional lawyer, uh, and, and is looking at one of these top playing uh, contracts uh, where the pre- the previous agent, let's say, has earned, for argument's sake, let's just say a hundred k on that, that particular deal to keep a, a, a number simple. Uh, and they're going to earn off the same deal, £4,000 in legal fees. Do you think that's going to really work? Yeah. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, I, I, We know for a fact the lawyers will get paid. And I know Correct. for two facts that the accountants will definitely get paid, um, mainly because it's the accountant doing the paying. Um, <laughs> there's one more question for you, uh, Craig. And it comes from Joe Conway. And Joe would like to know, what's the one thing you would change within current agent guidelines and why? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's a, a, a good question. And I'm going to give him a bit of a curveball answer, if if I may, Kevin. Of course. Um, and the reason I'm going to give him a curveball answer is um, I, I've just I've just written my, my dissertation um, and I've done a 10-year a, a study uh, on the finances in the championship, our our second tier. Uh, obviously, Brighton and uh, and Palace have been there, but now happily sailing good ship Premier League. Um, and the one thing I would like to see changed in football is the distribution of um, parachute payments and solidarity payments. And the, the the reason for that, if we if we if we just look at the example of of someone like Sheffield United who were who were relegated last season, having uh, secured uh, one season in the Premier League and had a great season that year, so they're entitled to 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 three years of parachute payments, uh, 
which will total, um, if they stay in the championship for the three years, of course, uh, just under £102 million. So if we look at Stoke City, who are no longer in receipts of parachute payments, if we look at that same three-season period, Stoke City would receive £23.8 million in solidarity payments and their EFL TV deal. So that's a, a disparity of almost seventy-eight million pounds, yeah. um, and you know, in post-COVID times, I think it, it's going to make the second tier of English football uncompetitive. I think we're going to see um, two of the three clubs promoted every season, every yeah. season, uh, being in receipt of of parachute payments. Uh, and I think it could become a little bit dull and boring. But the, the, the flip side of that is the Derby Counties, the the, the, the Middlesbroughs, the, the, the Stoke Cities, the Blackburn Rovers, the, these other teams that are, are chasing that spot uh, in the in the Premier League. And there are only three teams that get promoted. You know, it's it, it really does come down to uh, the, the, the finances involved. They've got to really stretch themselves and push themselves to the absolute limit just to be competitive. And we've seen recently what's happened with with Derby County uh, and, and how, you know, I think it's, you know, six months yesterday was their anniversary of being in administration. A club like Derby County should not be in administration. And and if we if we if we strip it back a little bit and look at um, Mel Morris's ownership and, and his time at the club. Mel Morris didn't go in there uh, to ruin Derby County. He didn't go in there to leave it in in in, a, in the financial state that that it's in. He went in there and gambled to get the team to to the Premier League. And if you look at another team that they gambled with at the same time was was Leeds United. So Leeds United had the same financial exposure uh, as as Derby County, if not more. The difference is Leeds United got promoted to the Premier League. Their gamble paid off. Uh, and they're in receipt of, of, of huge amounts of, of, of money now. Um, it, just just on the on the solidarity payment, League One teams get seven hundred and sixty thousand pounds, gents, uh, and League Two teams get five hundred thousand. So there's not a great jump between League yeah. Two and League One. It's two hundred k. But then you look at the jump from League One to the to the to the to the championship it's 700k to to 5 million and then you look at the the, the premier sorry the championship to the premier league the the minimum team sorry the, the bottom team in the premier league gets over 101 million pounds guaranteed income yeah if you've done a 10 year study on finances in the championship that would explain why kieran gets on so well with you uh, I would, I would, I would say though, Craig, that fifty percent of our news stories and fifty percent, if not more, of our questions each week, at least, are about the championship or championship yeah. clubs, and about this huge dichotomy. We we speak quite often to uh, the, the boss of Scottish football, who's been very friendly with us, Neil Doncaster, who talks about the fact that it's, it's a great it's, guy, Neil. It's yeah. great, but well, <laughs> not according to some of the tweets he gets that he tells us about. But he talks about, as Kieran does, about the slope between in Scottish football rather than the chasm. But it seems that no one, no one is able to come up with a, a way of effectively bridging that huge gap between the Championship and the Premier League. And until they do. This, that's one of the reasons this pod will continue because until they do, so many of the clubs in the Championship are living beyond their means in that desperate yeah. thing to get into the Premier League 
because the thinking is that just one season in the Premier League will solve their financial problems for the next ten years. It's it's just a situation. No one and it doesn't, Kevin. And and and, that, and that's the problem. It, it it doesn't because when the teams get to the Premier League, they realise it's a completely completely different financial um, uh, scenario that that they're dealing with. But then they look at again spending and, and overstretching because of the value of staying in the in the Premier League. Yeah, I yeah. think I think Norwich I, I, listen I, Jeremy Pease at um at, at West Brom I think had this model about right and we'll recall what he used to do. Um his team used to get promoted to the Premier League. They would um, then sign the better players from the championship uh with a couple of foreign players. Invariably they would be relegated they would sell their better players to Premier League clubs, reinvest that money in top players from the championship without overstretching themselves, get promoted again to the point where it happened two or three times. And then yeah. the third time, they had enough quality to, to stay in the league without putting themselves at, at financial risk. The, 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 the one thing I looked at, guys, and, and, and parachute payments. Do you know when the first parachute payment was made? No. Right, so the first season of the Premier League was 92-93, Yeah. The first parachute payments were paid to the three teams that were relegated at the end of the 91-92 season. Luton Town, oh, well. Notts County and West Ham United all received £750,000 each in parachute payments and they'd never played in the Premier League. That's really interesting. The other thing, now we're talking about it, Craig, so it's, it's managing the financial expectation of fans as well. Was when... Palace were promoted in 2013, which was well ahead of the schedule that the new owners had set. Yeah. The new owner, the new owners, Steve Parish, Steve Barrett in particular, were very vocal. They talked to fans a lot, saying, "Look, we've we've spent all the money we had getting getting this club back on its feet, buying the club, took all our money. We haven't got enough to compete in the Premier League, probably transfer wise. So the chances are we we may go down." And and all Palace fans were literally the attitude was. Thank you for telling us that. We're still happy we've got a club. If we go down, we go down. And and we didn't. It took us, I think, six seasons till we thought we were established. But the fact is that all along, they, we were told it was going to be baby steps. So you, you understand that. And what happens is too many people take over a championship club, promise the fans the earth, spend what money they, they haven't got to deliver it. And, and when they do deliver it, they can't keep them up. Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's where fans get frustrated. I, th- I think as, as well. I'm a fan. You're a fan. We're all we're all we're all football fans here. I'm a, I'm a Middlesbrough fan, and um, I, I, I look back at Middlesbrough's time in the Premier League, and I think we became, or certainly I did, um, a, a little bit um, complacent. Um, yeah, yeah, a, 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 a little a little bit arrogant. Uh, dare dare I say? Um, and we we had Steve McLaren in charge of, of, of Middlesbrough at the time. Uh, and we qualified for Europe twice and went to a UEFA Cup final. And we complained about the football. A lot of us, <laughs> I, 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 I promise you, yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of us complained <laughs> about the football that was on. The fo- looking back, it was fantastic. But because the standard was, the level was raised and the expectation level was raised, season in, season out, and, you know, Fans expect owners. Look, the, the same fans that criticising owners for for being frugal uh, and not spending the money are, on the other hand, criticising them for not spending the money yeah, yeah. To, to 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 make the team more competitive. I, I think if we if we look at at Brighton, 
I think Brighton have got a great ownership model. Um, I think Paul Barber's a, a wonderful CEO. Um, I think the football club play really nice, lovely football. Um, but I think they've hit a plateau. I, I think the, the, they're at a level now. And I think I listened to the pod recently, and I think you've scored ten goals at home this season uh, for, for the for the for the fans to watch. And what what does a club like like Brighton do? Um, they can't overstretch themselves financially, which I applaud them for not doing. Um, they've got to be a little bit creative and take some risks in the market with a little bit of unknown players and, and then high-quality players on loan. I think that's that's the market as well. The, the real top clubs are stockpiling talent, particularly young talent. Um, we've seen Conor Gallagher, who I think is one of the, the finest midfield players in, in England right now. Yep. Um, he, he's had a, a wonderful season on loan at, at, at Crystal Palace. Um and we see the benefit of those those type of loans, not just for the players, um, but also for for the clubs, and importantly for the fans. You know, this this is a a sport which is which is born on on fans turning up on match day and and watching games. Um, and look, without football fans, football wouldn't exist. And I know people people you know really have some some strange comments about the value of the TV deal. The value of the TV deal only exists because people are watching the games on TV. You know, there's still the, the, the punts that turn up at the stadium still impact. Not not as much, Kieran, as we know in terms of the, the, the top clubs, how much they contribute to their, their bottom line and their income, but the they still do impact, and you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. There's, uh, you, you'll you'll remember when Mark Viduka was playing for, for for Middlesbrough. Yeah, he was. Uh, he, he'd been out injured for a long time, um, and he was back at the the, the training ground up at, at Rockcliffe Park, and uh, I, I I was I was there, and uh, he was signing some autographs for some fans, and uh, one guy decided to give him a, a bit of abuse uh, because he'd been unfit and hadn't played, and said to him, "Don't forget." I pay your wages. And Vaduka <laughs> just stopped, looked at him and went, you must be a really rich guy and walked <laughs> off. <laughs> Craig, it's been, it's been lovely to talk to you. I, I agree with you. I, I don't know what's happening at Brighton. If they can't even get into the semi-finals of the FA Cup, Craig, I don't know. Something, something clearly wrong with that club. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Craig. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been really interesting. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. I found that a really interesting interview, actually. I have some really interesting insight. Uh, I didn't realise it was the six-month anniversary of Derby County going into administration. I doubt mm-hmm. even I doubt if even Moonpig have got a card for that <laughs> scenario. But that six months is a hell of a long time for Derby fans to be sitting on their anxiety. I also didn't know there was a circumstance uh, from that interesting question we had that players could get a slice of the agent's fee if the, if the, if that was negotiated beforehand. Yes, yeah, no, it was uh, it, it was it was enlightening. I, mean, I I I got to know Craig. I, I I've been teaching Craig recently on on a price of football course, um, and uh, I I learned as much from him. Yeah. In fact, I probably learned more from him than he learned from me because uh, I'm just I just shout randomly amortization and FFP sort of into a <laughs> microphone um, in, in, in the hope in the hope of being able to sort of convince people I know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, but Craig Craig, Craig was. Uh, Craig was fascinating, and um, he's he he wants to represent his clients, and he wants to look after the interests of his clients. And I think this is you know certainly you know I've got to know a few footballers in recent years. You've known a lot of footballers through your connections with Match of the Day and so on. Um, and the, the footballers don't seem that 
to have that much of a problem with with their agents yeah, because yeah, yeah. you know you you work in the entertainment industry uh, having an agent to represent your interests is, uh, is 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 part of the standard approach yeah also very interesting to hear an agent get so <clears throat> worked up as he did about the unfair distribution of money in english football you you wouldn't think it was something that an agent would be too fussed about except of course when he's trying to distribute some of it towards one of his players but he's clearly sincere in his belief that we need to find a way of of bridging that chasm especially between the premier league and the championship yep yeah it's uh uh it it encourages gambling um and if if you're going to gamble and you're going to then say it didn't work out this time we go again that's fine but as we've seen with derby county what happens if you gamble get bored and and yeah, and, yeah we, we end up with this uh, this scenario that we've got at present uh, at Pride Park. Well, that's it for today. Except to say, we look forward to seeing some of you tonight for our first ever live show. And if we don't make a complete balls up of it, we look forward to announcing dates for more shows in Plymouth, Peterborough, Tranmere, Accrington, Jersey, Belfast, the Wembley Arena, Las Vegas, and Dubai before <laughs> the inevitable cruise ship franchise that we've got lined up in 2023. We, we plan to have five separate Price of Football shows on five different cruise ships going out at the same time. Um, if, you, if you want to help us with that ambition by donating a small amount of money, then that would be very kind of you. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you've got a question for our Monday questions pod, then please go to questions at priceoffootball.com or email even questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, uh, once again, folks, uh, thank you for all the support you give to us. Um, yep, yeah, we uh, so we're recording this on the Wednesday. Um, no, no pre-match nerves as yet, uh, but uh, we we are we're genuinely looking forward to meeting some of you, um, uh, and uh, yeah, we, we will have some special guests. Um, not not all necessarily with two legs. Um, <laughs> So, so we'll have to see, see, see what on earth that means. Um, if, if, you, if you want to support the show, uh, Patreon is is one vehicle that you can use for as little as a pound a month. Uh, we, we appreciate uh, we appreciate every dime, as, as they say in the States. Um, the other way of doing that is to go to your app uh, that you use to download your your podcasts um, and you can give us a review. Um, it, it, it genuinely makes a difference. Uh, it, it helps us. If you can give us five stars, it keeps, it keeps us in the charts and uh, you know, we, we we are punching above our weight, given given sort of the niche nature of the show, as far as the the charts are concerned. And um, it it doesn't it doesn't matter what you say. You could say you would rather have the show presented by Snoop Dogg and Delia Smith, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference. I, I, that would be a fascinating story, a fascinating show, and I can just imagine the type of things that they'd be cooking together. I, I, I can just imagine that. You know, I know some people get really annoyed when I say this, but I've worked with both of those. And, and and both of them are very charming people. It's, it's uh, and both of them are very good at the mic drop as well. Uh, Delia, oh really? Oh, Delia's mic drop when she was on the pitch at half time. Oh yes. <laughs> when when I don't know if producer guy legally was allows us to say this one would suggest that perhaps one tablespoon too much of white wine had gone into the risotto. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> that would be that would be the most laid back. Pod, I imagine Snoop Dogg and and Delia are so late, but then inevitably Snoop Dogg would come out as a Catholic as well because she's. <laughs> she's <laughs> I, mean, I just imagine the confused look on Snoop Dogg's face as he comes out 
with his, with his rosary. Going, Where did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye, son, for football.